liked it. So uh, welcome. It's good to see you. Uh, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here. And uh, my family and I were out of town last weekend. We were visiting with uh, friends. And uh, though it was wonderful to be uh, with our friends, to spend time with them, to worship with other saints uh, in another city last Sunday, uh, every, every time we go, I find myself just missing y'all. Um, it was wonderful to, to be able to worship with other saints in another place, but, but it makes us long for CTK. Uh, we, we miss you all, and so it's great to be back with you. Um, and if you are joining us, if this is maybe your first or second Sunday here and you're kind of just jumping in with us this morning, uh, you're jumping in in the midst of a series that we're doing in the book of 1 Samuel. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, there are also Bibles in the chair in front of you. And our plan is to go through the entirety of 1 Samuel. And so this means that we're going to come to the summer. We'll take a little break during the summer months, and then we'll return to the, this book in the fall and continue to move through. And, and maybe if you've been with us uh, for a number of weeks or months or even years now, you've noticed that this is our pattern that this is what we do, we go through books of the Bible. That generally speaking, we just start in chapter 1, verse 1, and we work our way through, right? We've done this with, well, we're going to do it with 1 Samuel. We did it with Exodus, Psalms, 1 Peter, you know, these various books. This is what we do. And, and there's a few reasons why we do this. There's a few reasons why we're not just skipping ahead to, to the, you know, fun stuff. You know, David and Goliath. Maybe that's what y'all are wondering. Like, when are we going to get to Goliath? I want to hear about his head getting cut off. Um, at least if you're like a 10-year-old boy, that's what you're looking forward to. But, uh, but the reason we do this is, is a couple of reasons. One is we believe that all of God's word is God's word. Not just, the, not just the gory stuff, not just the fun stuff, not just the easy stuff, but even the difficult passages. That that's God's word, and we need to hear that as well, not just the fun stuff. Even the passages that are hard to preach, right? So it keeps us honest as, as pastors. Like, we have to deal with all of God's word because it is God's word. So that's one reason. But another reason, and, and as, just as important, is that the Bible is a unified whole. The Bible is a story that is telling us the truth of this world and of who God is and what he is doing in it. And so we, we need to read the entirety of this story, right? This story that begins with God creating the heavens and the earth and of his people rebelling against him. And the remainder of the story is how God is redeeming his people, how he's bringing us back. And so these various books that we have, like 1 Samuel or 1 Kings or Exodus or 1 Peter, they're all really chapters of this great story that God has given to his people, and so before we can even understand David and our need for a king like David and why David would come, we have to see why he was needed. See, we have to see the, the failings of Eli's sons and soon, very soon, the failings of Saul. We have to see why the people needed a man like David because this is part of the story of God's redemption. It's a story, it's our story. It's our story. And so that's another reason for why we do this. And so we, we are jumping in again to 1 Samuel where we left off last week. The ark has gone off into the land of the Philistines, 
right? God showed himself to be greater than the, the gods of the Philistines, right? Dagon is nothing compared to our God. I, I was a little jealous, not in a sinful way, in a holy way, a righteous way that Andrew got to preach that passage last week. I mean, Dagon's head falling off, like that's awesome. Um, so, but, but that's what happened, right? God showed himself to be more powerful, to be stronger, to be greater than all the gods of this earth. And the ark is being returned to Israel. And so how do they respond to that? As God returns, as he comes back into the midst of his people, how do they return? Well, or how do they respond? Well, well, the people are led into repentance. Now, that's a very churchy word, repentance. What does that mean? Well, 1 Samuel 7 is going to help us understand that. So let's go ahead and read 1 Samuel 7. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth, that are from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines so the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only then Samuel said gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you so they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there we have sinned against the Lord and Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time and for your word, and ask that as we come to your word now, that you would help us. 
that you, by the work of your Spirit, would open our eyes and unplug our ears and soften our hearts and equip our hands so that not just this morning, but in all of our days and in all of the ways that you have called us to, that we would follow you. So we ask for your help now, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the 2000 uh, Summer Olympics in Sydney, Australia, were in many ways like many other Olympic Games. Uh, there were uh, great athletes, great accomplishments. There was uh, Bob Costa showing up on our TV screens telling these wonderful stories about the athletes and how much they sacrificed and how much they gave of themselves to get to this place, right? These tear-jerking moments, because it's not enough to just watch someone run the 100-meter dash. We need to know all the backstory, right? So they would give it. And, and so many athletes caught our attention. And we, we gave ourselves to their stories, and we celebrated them. And one of these athletes was Marion Jones. Marion Jones was a track and field athlete for the United States. She, she, she had an incredible Olympic Games. She won five medals, three golds, one in the 100, the, the 200, and the 4 by 400 meter relay, and, and two bronze medals in the long jump and the 4 by 100 meter relay. I mean, she took the games by storm, and, and people were excited about her races, and they were tuning in, and they were watching and celebrating with her after this victory, after victory, after victory. We love seeing her win, but, but if you know the story of Marion Jones, you know that, that her story doesn't end with gold medals and celebration. Because as soon as the Olympics were over, there were whispers Whispers of performance-enhancing drugs, whispers that, that she had cheated her way to Olympic glory, and initially she denied it. She said, there's no way, I, I sacrificed, I worked hard, I, I put in all the extra effort, I, I watched what I ate, I did all the things, I, there was no way. But then in 2007, Marion Jones found herself in, in a courtroom in New York, and there she stood before the judge and she confessed that she had lied. That she had lied to federal agents that she really had taken performance-enhancing drugs. And then she was standing on the courthouse steps, and you can actually go online, you can YouTube this and watch it. She stood there and there was a gaggle of reporters before her and microphones in her face and her family and friends were standing behind her with her lawyer and and there she was about to speak about what she had done. Now, what would you think she would say? What would you expect? I mean, we've seen this before, right? Athletes who, who have been caught cheating. I mean, the Houston Astros, right? I mean, we just saw this, right? Athletes who have been caught cheating. Politicians who are engulfed in scandal. Like, what do we expect them to say in those moments? We expect them to say things like, well, well, you know, I'm sorry I disappointed you. I'm sorry I let you down, but, but I didn't know what I was doing, right? This was just youthful exuberancy, you know? I, I didn't know what they were injecting into my stomach. I thought it was, you know, vitamin B or something like that. Or that, that cream they were rubbing on my muscles. I thought it was just to take the aches and pains away. I didn't realize that it was steroids. Right? We expect those sorts of things, don't we? It's not my fault. I had no idea what was going on. We expect excuses, don't we? Of course we do, because that's what we get. Right? That's what we hear, excuse after excuse. Well, it's really not my fault. And so when Marion Jones stood in front of those microphones, that's what we would expect. But, but this is what she said. 
She said, it is with a great amount of shame that I stand before you and tell you that I have betrayed your trust. I am responsible fully for my actions. I have no one to blame but myself for what I have done. I have been dishonest and, ha and you have the right to be angry with me. I have let my country down and I have let myself down. Now that's not a normal confession, right? I mean, that's not what we expect to hear. And yet, did you hear what she said? She didn't blame Schiff. She says, I have no one to blame but myself. She didn't point fingers. She said, it is me. I take full responsibility for my actions. She didn't make excuses. She said, I have been dishonest. The only fingers that she pointed were the fingers that she pointed at herself. The scene is this incredibly emotional scene of contrition, of taking responsibility of repentance. That's what she is doing in that moment. And at the encouragement of Samuel, that's what the people of Israel are led into. They're led into repentance. That that's what the people of God, how they are to respond when God comes into their midst, they are to repent. I mean, we see it as the ark comes back in verse 2. What do the people do? Well, we're told they lamented after the Lord. They're lamenting. They're grieving about what has taken place. And then Samuel in verse 3 says, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, if you're returning, that word returning, it means repent. If you are truly repenting, Samuel says, I, I hear your laments. I hear your grieving. But but he's not just content with words. Samuel wants to see their repentance. He's calling them to true repentance. So what is repentance going to look like? What's it going to look like? Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism helps us a little bit here. If you look in your order of service on the very first page during the reflections, one of the reflections is from the Shorter Catechism, number 87. And there it asks the question, what is repentance unto life? <clears throat> and the answer is, repentance unto life is a saving grace by which a sinner, being truly aware of his sinfulness, understands the mercy of God in Christ, grieves for and hates his sin, and turns from them to God, fully intending and striving for new obedience. So you hear what Westminster is saying, that that repentance is going to have three aspects to it. It's going to be acknowledging our sin, being aware of it, telling it. It's going to be turning from it and turning to God. And that's what we see the people doing. That's what we see when they repent of their sin, they tell their sin. They lament in verse 3, but then in verse 6, we see as Samuel leads them into worship, the people take water and they pour it out. We're not exactly sure why they were doing this. We don't see this very often in Scripture. We think that maybe what it was was they were taking something that was needed for life like water and they were pouring it out as a symbol of their dependence, of, of giving up of something. But they pour out this water, they fast, and then what do they say? They say, we have sinned against the Lord. We have sinned. So you see what they're doing. They're owning their sin. They're taking responsibility for their sin. So kids, I want you to think about this for a second. All right, kids, I, I want you to think about the last time your mom or dad caught you doing something you weren't supposed to do. 
Maybe it was just a few hours ago. <laughs> but I want you to think about, maybe, maybe it was that you snuck your phone into your room and it's not supposed to be in your room. Or maybe you went over your allotted number of minutes for screen time. Or, or maybe you snuck a snack, right, or a candy, you know, or, or you hid something from your sibling because you knew they wanted it and you didn't really want it, but spite, you know, that it's kind of motivates sometimes. So maybe it was something like that and your parents caught you. And so what did you say to your parents when they caught you? With your phone in your room, on your tablet, mouth full of chocolate? I imagine that probably what you said was, it's not my fault. <laughs> it's not my fault. I mean, mom, why didn't you take my phone and put it in the charger so I wouldn't have taken it to my room? It's not my fault. Mom, why didn't you tell me that my 30 minutes was up on my tablet? And, and mom, why didn't you leave the chocolate out on the counter? You should have put it away and hid it from me so I would have never seen it. It's not really my fault. Maybe hypothetically, that's what you said. <laughs> I mean, I imagine that for many of you, what you didn't say was, you're right. I was wrong. It's my fault. I've sinned. I'm sorry. Kids, is, is that, are those the first words that come to your mind? Should I ask your parents? <laughs> no, I don't need to ask your parents because I know what the answer is going to be. But you know what? Here's the thing, kids. Um, I don't need to ask your parents because if I ask your parents what their first response to their sin is, I'd probably hear some of the same things. It's just we're much better at hiding it. And we're much more subtle in the ways that we talk about it. Because we say things like, well, I'm sorry that you were offended by this. Or, or I'm sorry that you misunderstood. Or if he hadn't have said X, then I wouldn't have responded with Y. But you know what that is, y'all? That is not repentance. <laughs> I'm sorry that you were hurt by that. No, 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 no. That's their fault now. That's not repentance. No, repentance is I have sinned. And not just against man, but against God. And that's where Israel begins. We have sinned against the Lord. And that's where we are to begin. That's where we begin. We tell our sin. But true repentance doesn't just end with speaking our sin about telling it. It moves on. It, it goes beyond that. So maybe some of you here are, are new to the church. Maybe you're exploring Christianity. We are glad that you are here. And so maybe you have this, this idea about Christianity that like, Christians get off easy, right? They get off easy. Actually, this is Kira Knightley, who, the actress. She's an atheist. And she said, I wish I could believe in God. I wish I was a Christian because I could do whatever I want, and then I just confess it, and I'm done, and I can keep living my life any way I want. No guilt. So maybe that's what you think about Christianity, that, that it's just like repent and everything's okay. But friends, that's not true repentance. That's actually cheap grace. It's not real grace. No, you see, true repentance, it begins with saying, yes, I have sinned. But then true repentance means turning away from sin. That's what Samuel calls the people to do. He says in verse 3, if you are returning, repenting, remember, if you are repenting to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. So you hear what he's saying? He's saying, turn away from your sin. 
somewhere along the way, the people of God, they, they had started to incorporate the pagan religious practices of the people around them into their own lives, right? These foreign gods and this Ashtaroth, we think that that's an allusion to sexual immorality, because the pagan religions around them, that's what they were doing. They were engaging in sexual immorality within the practice of their worship. And so what Samuel is saying is if you truly are repenting, you will turn away. You will turn your back on this sin. You will put it away and be done with it. But that's not where he ends. You see, we don't just turn away and we then live within this like neutral limbo stage, right? Where we're, we're not sinning, but, but we're not really doing good either, right? We're just kind of in limbo. No, no, he said repentance actually goes beyond that. In verse 3, don't just put away your foreign gods, but after you have done that, direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. You see, repentance means turning away from our sin and turning to God. And that's what the people start to do. That's what they start to do. They respond to Samuel's call. They gather at Mizpah and they worship before God. And they confess their sin and they ask Samuel to intercede on their behalf. And in verse 8, he does. The people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our God, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Think about how different this is than the last time we heard them speaking about the Philistines. Right in chapter 4, when the Philistines were breathing threats against them and they were ready to go into battle, how did they respond then? Hey, let's go get the ark and we'll push God into a corner and make him come to our aid. Right? They were trying to manipulate God, but now how they respond, they turn to God. And they humble themselves before him and they cry out and ask for help and for salvation. Friends, this is true repentance. It's telling our sin, and it's turning away from sin, and it's turning to God. And that's what we're to do. And we're to keep doing it. We're to keep doing it. We're not done with it just that one time when we first believed, but we're to do it every day of our lives. Because the truth is, is that repentance is a consistent part of the life of a Christian. True repentance, we're, we're never done completely with true repentance because in this life, we're not completely done with sin. Right? Yes, it's true that, that through Jesus, his death and his resurrection, he has broken the bonds of sin, right? So that we are not enslaved by it anymore. But, but we also know that, that the parasite of sin still lives within us and that there is a war being waged. Even right now, the New Testament tells us within our hearts, the Spirit of God is waging war against the Spirit of our flesh right now. And so repentance is going to look like a regular part of our lives. And so maybe now you're thinking about this past week. And maybe you're thinking about those thoughts you entertained and you're thinking about those words you spoke and the things that you did. And maybe you're thinking, you know, I, I haven't been turning away from sin. I haven't been turning to God. I haven't been confessing my sin. I haven't been repenting. Well, y'all, if that's you, then repent now. Repent today. And repent tomorrow and repent this week for, for whatever sin it is. Whatever sin it is, you, kids, you, you snuck your phone. Repent. 
right? You, you looked at pornography, repent, turn away from it. You destroyed someone with your words, repent and turn to God, right? You, wh- whatever it might be, don't let a day go by, but repent today and tomorrow and, and all of our days. Turn away from our sin and ask God, God, make, make that sin gross in my eyes. Make me disgusted by it so that I would not be attracted to it any longer. Ask him to help us turn towards him so that we would see his beauty and know his mercy. Because, friends, when we repent, that's what we find. We repent of our sins and we receive the mercy of God. That's what the people experience. They receive God's mercy after they repent. Look at verses 9 through 11. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. And how did God answer them? He didn't answer them with a word. He didn't speak a vocal word to him. He answered them through his actions. Keep reading. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Car. I mean, think about the difference, right? In chapter 4, when they were trying to manipulate God and make him do what they wanted, it was Israel that was defeated. It was Israel that was brought down. But now, it's the Philistines. And it's not because Israel was so strong now. It's not because Israel was mighty. It wasn't because of their power, but it was because of the Lord. You see, through God's victory, he bestows mercy upon his people. And y'all, the same God who brought mercy upon the people against the Philistines is the same God who brings mercy upon us. And he does it not by going to war against some foreign nation. He does it by going to war against sin and death. Because in the cross, Jesus took our sin on himself. And in his resurrection, he defeated death. And he did these things. He died and he rose again. So we would receive the mercy of God. That's why we repent. That's why we acknowledge our sin. That's why we turn from it. That's why we turn to God. Because he bestows upon his people mercy and grace. So that those sins that we are repenting of, that we are confessing, we might know that they are forgiven because in Christ they are. They are forgiven. We repent to receive his mercy. But we don't stop there. We repent of our sin and we remember God's mercy, but also we remember God's faithfulness. You see, the story doesn't end with God trouncing the Philistines. We pick up in verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Now in Ebenezer, that word, it means a stone of help. It's a stone of help. Samuel is setting up a memorial stone, a stone to serve as remembrance for all that God has done. And Samuel is doing this not just as a way of worshiping God, but but he does this because he understands something about our humanity. He understands something about Israel and about us. He understands that we forget. And we quickly forget. 
I mean, just think about it. We, we come in on Sunday mornings and we worship and we sing of God and all that he has done, that he is the great king over all, and then how quickly do we go out? And we start associating all of our successes with ourselves. Right? How quickly we think that the solutions to our problems, they're just, they're just one election away, they're just one court decision away. Right? We start thinking, we quickly think that, that we actually have control over our lives. And we quickly forget who God is and what he has done. You see, a huge part of our struggle is that we forget. We forget. This is why scripture is constantly reminding us to remember. Right? I mean, in the book of Exodus, after God led his people out of the Exodus, after he defeated the Egyptians, what did Moses give to the people the Passover? And he said, remember the day that God delivered you. And in Deuteronomy, he said, Moses, to the people, remember how God led you, how he led you out of Egypt, and he led you through the wilderness. And the Psalms are filled with this language of remember. Remember the deeds of the Lord, his wonders of old, his power and his redemption, and even into the New Testament. In the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul calls us to remember that once we were separated from God, that we had no hope, but now we have peace with God. Remember, remember. This is a theme throughout scripture. Remember, remember. This is why we gather each and every week. Because we need to remember the story of redemption. And that's what our service is going through, right? It is rehearsing to us the story of redemption. That it is God, the creator of the universe, who calls us. And that we have sinned against him, and so we repent of our sin, and we hear these words of grace, and we sing, we remember together all that God has done. You see, we gather to pull our hearts out of a fog of forgetfulness and remember the beauty of our salvation. And that's what this table does. This table that we're about to partake of, this table, that's what it does. Because when Jesus initiated the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in Luke chapter 22, he said to his disciples, he says to us, that we are to eat and drink from this table in remembrance of him. And so you see, friends, we don't have a memorial stone or a rock of remembrance. What we have is the Lord's table, where we remember that Christ died on the cross for our sins and his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. We have this table where we remember because of Christ, we have God's mercy. And so, so even as we're about to come to this table, we are invited to repent and we are invited to receive his mercy, and we are invited to remember his faithfulness. And so let's do that now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that as we ready ourselves to come to this table, and as we prepare to eat the bread and drink from the cup, that, that you would cause us to remember, that you would lead us into repentance as you already have this morning, that we would know of your mercy and your grace and we would remember that the mercy that we have was paid by the blood of your son. So Father, help us to remember not just this morning, but all of our days, your mercy and your grace, that we would turn from our sin and turn towards you. Help us, we pray, in Christ's name and God's people said together, amen. I'll invite our ushers to come forward and we'll take this morning's ties and offer.